Heavenly Father, we have a, a very simple prayer this morning. We want to be a people that have gathered here this morning, not because it's Sunday and not because we call ourselves Christians, not even because it's the Lord's Day and it's where we're supposed to be. We ask, Lord, this morning that this time of worship to you, the time that we've had to, to sing and to pray and to read your word and now the proclamation of it, we ask, Lord, that it would be done in our hearts and minds by faith. We want this to be a pleasing offering to you. And we know, as the very text says, that if it's not done in faith and it's not pleasing to you, it's not an acceptable sacrifice, it will not be received, and it will have no impact on us. And so I pray, Lord, you would cast out whatever false pretense or wrong reason we had for coming here today, and you would replace that with a faith from above, that we would listen to and hear of these men that you've written about and give us a, a bearing on how we ought to be living our lives as well. I do pray, Father, that it would not be discouraging to us. We would not hear about these great men and women of the faith and find ourselves discouraged, but rather encouraged to live such faith-filled lives. We know it's good for us, Father. We know it's right to not live by the flesh, but to live by the Spirit and by faith that dwells in us. And so help us to see not only that it's good for us, Lord, but infinitely more important, it is glorifying to you. And that's why we're here. That's why you made us. That's why you redeemed us. That's why we've gathered here this morning. That's why we live and are called to live a life of faith that we might glorify you. So until our faith becomes sight, until you bring us home and we see Christ face to face, make our faith great, not just individually, but as a people. Give us great faith, Father, that our mission field, those friends and family workers and co-workers in our lives, our neighbors here, that this very neighborhood would see that this is a faith-filled church. We ask that you would do that, Father, that we might have the right impact we're supposed to have in our mission field, that people might see us as a people of faith, and you would use that to redeem them. Father, I ask that you be gracious with our little church in the midst of very, very strange times, Lord, with disease and fire, um, that we would cling to Christ, that we would cling to His Word, that we would cling to the saving faith that we have, that You've given us. I ask that You would bless us by Your Spirit in that way this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, saints. Not a lot of smoke in here, that's good. <clears throat> I feel like I've smelled like a campfire for the last four days. I uh, hope your Bible's open to Hebrews chapter 11. If not, please do so. <clears throat> if you were here with us last Sunday, we started this great chapter, this chapter on the heroes of the faith, and we had a chance to define the faith. What is biblical faith? What is true saving faith? And we looked at God as creator, and we're going to get into some of the great men and women of the faith over the next few weeks. I don't know if you're aware of this. When we started Hebrews 
last week at the exact same time, the Democratic National Convention had an interfaith conference on the same day. You know what an interfaith conference is, right? Interfaith service where leaders from different world religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, yes, that is a religion, they gathered and they had a message to the world that it doesn't really matter what your faith is or what your faith is in, that as long as you have faith, any faith at all, that the end will be better for you regardless of what you believe. Now, we saw last week, if you were paying attention, there is only one faith that offers sinful man hope now and for eternity. There's only one faith that has the power to overcome sin and death. And it's not just some random faith directed toward some random being or some consciousness or nothing. Biblical faith, we're told in verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not seen. The absolute 100%, as we saw last week, guarantee that the things that we hope for in Christ will come to pass, and the proof or evidence that what God has promised to do for His people in Christ, He will in fact do. That's biblical faith. In other words, faith is always defined by the object of the faith. Not random, but specific. And in the context of Christ, it is the person of Christ. That's why we believe in faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, what the Democratic National Party was trying to do was they were trying to send a message to the American people that Joe Biden is a man of faith. Now, don't shake your heads. This is not political, so just listen with me. That he's a man of faith. A man of faith who they say will restore the soul of America. Now as Christians, we believe that every single human being is made in the image of God and therefore is intrinsically a man or a woman of faith. In other words, everyone believes in something. Everyone has a ground zero, a presupposition where their faith begins, where their worldview begins. So in that sense, we would... We would agree with CNN's July headline, quote, Joseph Biden is a man of faith, and we would understand why the Democratic National Party is arguing that he will restore the soul of America. The question for the discerning Christian, and I would argue for, I hope, any discerning voter, is what type of faith does Joseph Biden have? What, what does it mean that he is a man of faith? And it is a faith that we should listen to Embrace and follow. Believe it or not, the answer to that question is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Yes, the answer to a political question is found in God's Word. So after establishing a definition of faith in verse 1, and then talking about its approval in verse 2, and then a very foundation in verse 3, with God being the creator of all that is seen and unseen, and that's where the worldview begins for the Christian the author proceeds to give his audience several examples from the Old Testament. Men and women of faith. Not a faith in general. Not a faith in something ambiguous, a higher being. But men and women whose faith is in the one true living God. A faith that we're told 
by the scriptures themselves is approved by this God in whom we are to place our faith. And so this morning, by God's grace, and I hope for the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at these godly men and godly women of faith. And, And I pray that it does not discourage you. It is not to hold up an example for you to say, I cannot do that, I cannot be that person. But rather, you will find great assurance and great courage in the faith of those sinners who are also saved by grace. And so I pray that as we work our way these next few weeks, you will find your assurance and your faith in God increasing, and you will be pursuing Christ in such a way that you will live a life of faith that can be written down too, that will be recorded as a hero of the faith because of the great work that Christ does in your life today. All right, so are you with me on that? All right, three things I want to show you. Abel's offering, Enoch's life, and Noah's obedience. Number one, Abel's offering. Number two, Enoch's life. And number three, Noah's obedience. Look with me at verse 4, Hebrews chapter 11, please. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the author begins with Abel, not Adam and Eve, their son, because Abel is the first figure in sacred scripture where we're told that God approved of the man's faith. Now, most of you, when you hear of Abel, you think of Cain and you think of the first act of murder, at least physical murder. But the author is drawing our attention to Abel, not to highlight the sin of murder, but to highlight the contrast between a man of faith and a man who was faithless. Abel, the faithful man, and Cain, the faithless man. In Genesis chapter 4, we're told that both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. It was an act of worship to God. And this is what we're told in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 3. Listen. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, The Lord looked with favor favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so God accepted, God looked upon the offering of Abel with favor, not because it was an animal or animal fat, and Cain brought the first fruit of his crops. We know the answer from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. He looked with favor upon Abel's offering. Look at verse 4 again. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain by faith. And so what distinguishes the two offerings, what distinguishes the two acts of worship, was not the fat portion of an animal or the grain offering of the first fruit. It was faith in God. Abel did not bring the offering to God to earn God's favor. Abel did not bring the offering to God to declare himself righteous. Abel did not bring the offering begrudgingly. The law was yet to be in place. There was no obligation for Abel or Cain to do either of these things. But what we do know about Abel, unlike Cain, is he brought that offering trusting God. He brought that offering with the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. 
Now, I want you to realize this is such an amazing expression of worship and adoration toward the living God so early in the redemptive story. This account of Abel's faithfulness is the very, very beginning of the creation, redemption story of God. It's an amazing statement because Abel knew how to draw near to God by faith before the scriptures had yet to be written. So early in human history, and yet God had revealed enough about himself to Abel that Abel understood, if I'm going to draw near to God as we're commanded to, then I must do it as a sinner by grace through faith. And so he brought his sacrifice simply trusting, trusting in the goodness of God, trusting in the existence of God. Trusting that God would receive this offering from a sinner, an offering of adoration and an offering of love, an expression from the creature to the creator. This is a key element of our faith, my beloved, that we want to be sure we do not miss. Listen closely. God never, ever looks just at the offering. He never just looks at the worship or the service or the sacrifice. He always looks at the heart of the individual that's bringing the offering to him. He looks to see that if your worship this morning is done in faith, he says, no, you got out of bed, you got showered, you're here, you prayed, you had a little chance to sing, and now you're listening, but are you listening in faith? That's the acceptable sacrifice to God. We can go through all the motions, and we can look very Christian, but if it's not done in faith, it has no saving power. It is not pleasing to the Lord. Our Lord said in Matthew 23, 23 to the scribes and Pharisees, listen, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and what? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And then he said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You should have done both. Every Sunday, we have an opportunity to worship God by bringing a monetary offering before the Lord that we give to the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry here and throughout the world. This would be the equivalent of Abel's fat portion or Cain's first fruit offering. Now, we do it as part of the corporate worship service because we believe that it is an act of worship. You giving to God from the heart as we had a chance to read from 2 Corinthians because you desire to do that. You desire to worship God like that. But if that gift is given with a faithless heart, if you give to the ministry of this church or or any ministry for that matter out of compulsion or religion or law or obligation or tradition, you say, well, it's Sunday, i got to give some money. Even though God may still use it to glorify Himself and further His kingdom, it will not be received by God as an acceptable offering in faith. For God to look upon any offering, any service, any act of worship done by His people, it must start in faith. The believer who what? Is assured of things hoped for and certain of that which he cannot see. In Romans chapter 12, Paul expands this and he reminds us that this is the entire life of the professing Christian. An offering, a sacrifice, which is you. 
Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and what? Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, it's, it's more than a Sunday morning. It's more than an offering. Your service, your sacrifice, your offering to God is your entire life, your body, your money, your family, your work, your hobbies, your ministries, whatever it may be. Your entire life is to be a moment-by-moment living sacrifice to the living God. That is what? Holy, set apart by God, and acceptable. You say, well, how, how do I live a life of faith that is acceptable to God? The answer, again, is in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because it was offered in faith. The only way that your life can be a living sacrifice that is acceptable to the Lord is if your life is lived in faith. Anything done outside of faith, we know to be sin. Six years ago, Ron and Patty Kramer, sorry, sister, I didn't tell you about this, but it'll be pleasing to God, traveled to Oklahoma to bring back Patty's aging and ailing mother, Opal. Opal was a founding member of this church, by the way, 1952. Brought Opal back to the Bay Area to live with them. They knew it was not going to be easy caring for our loved ones who are not well is not easy. Their home was small, their finances were tight, and both Ron and Patty at that time had health issues they were tending to. But they also knew it was the right thing to do. They knew it was an expression of their love for God. They knew it was an expression of their love for Opal. And they knew that God had commanded them to honor their father and mother. And so they went out and brought her home. For those of you who do not know, Opal went to be with the Lord last week. She went to be with Christ. But she spent her last six years of her life being loved for and cared for and ministered to by her family. Ron and Patty expressed their love for Opal, acting in faith, and that was an expression, an outward expression of the righteousness that they possessed in Christ. It was an alien righteousness. This was not Ron and Patty saying, let's be holy. This is what God had done to them. They received the righteousness from Christ by faith, and they were acting on it and acted on it by loving Opal properly. Now, we're told in this passage that Abel was commended as righteous. Again, not because his fat portion was better than Cain's first fruit offering. Abel was considered righteous in the eyes of God and was received by God because he worshiped God in faith. He worshiped God in faith. Abel was a sinner like his parents, Adam and Eve, like us. And yet God looked upon him as being righteous because of his faith. Because of his faith. Through his faith. Look at the latter part of verse 4. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His simple childlike faith in God before the Bible had been written, before the law, before the prophets, before Moses, before the gospel accounts... But for all the revelation that we sit on and we enjoy, Abel had a childlike faith in God, and though he died, listen, though he was murdered by his own brother, we're told here in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel lives. He's alive right now. 
And not only does he live, this text tells us that he speaks. You say, well, what, what is Abel saying right now? Well, he's having lots of conversation, no doubt, but he's saying something specific to the church. Abel is speaking right now to us, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Listen, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Abel is saying that now. Abel is speaking to us, Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Even as we saw a few weeks ago, Hebrews 10.38, my righteous one shall live by faith. This is what Abel is saying. Abel is alive and well even though he had been murdered. He was, the imputed righteousness of God was given to, given to him by his faith in Christ, and he's speaking that to us now. Any offering, any service, any sacrifice, any worship that you expect to be pleasing to God must be done in faith. Enoch's life. Why do we have Enoch? If Abel was given to us to see that our service and sacrifice and worship is pleasing to God when done in faith, what about Enoch? The second Old Testament figure the author brings to our attention. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. In Genesis chapter 5, as Moses recorded the generations from Adam to Noah, we hear about a very little about this faithful fellow named Enoch. We know he was the son of Jared. We know he was the father of Methuselah. We know that he lived 365 years, which was, by the way, a very short period of time. He was in his prime at 365. According to Genesis 5.24, though, we know this, and this is key And I believe why the author of Hebrews was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write it. Genesis 5.24, we're told that Enoch walked faithfully with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. So it's the first account in the Bible we have God doing a miraculous event of raising in bodily form someone into heaven. We'll see it again, or we see it again. With Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, we obviously saw it with Christ in Acts chapter 1. Enoch, one minute in bodily form on earth, the next minute in the presence of the living God. We talk about aha moments. He had one. He did not suffer the first death. He did not suffer the first death. So, well, why, why would God do that with Enoch? The latter part of verse 5 here in our passage, before he was taken, before he was lifted up, he was commended as having pleased God. Having pleased God. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, we're told that he walked with God during his lifetime. 365 years he walked with the Lord. He communed with God, enjoying sweet fellowship with the Creator. You hear that phrase, walking with God, and it's got to harken you back to the garden you got to think about what most theologians agree that prior to the fall, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And so certainly we understand that in saying that Enoch walked with God, that 
God was pleased. There was an intimacy. There was a relationship there with him. But I think verse 6 actually gives us the answer as to why God was pleased with Enoch. Look at verse 6 with me. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, whoever would walk with the Lord, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So Enoch was pleasing to God and able to walk with the Lord 365 years on earth because he was a man of faith. Not a man of faith as in the Democratic National Party's definition of a man of faith, but a man of faith who was what? He was able to draw near to God because we're told, one, he believed that God existed, and number two, he believed that God rewards those who seek him. You say, well, believing that God existed, how, how are we to understand this first aspect that the Lord found pleasing? We looked last week that it's really no big deal to believe that God exists. It may be in our cultural moment, but human history testifies that Mankind believes in God. James said, 2.19, even the demons believe that God exists and they shudder. So it's historically normative to believe that God exists. That would not be a unique characteristic to mankind. So certainly it must mean something more here when we're told that Enoch pleased God because he believes that God exists. We know that he believed that God existed as who God truly is, the great I Am. So centuries before, God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am, the one true living God. Listen, Enoch already believed. He already believed. Centuries before, Israel would regularly declare in their worship services for centuries, the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Enoch believed. Centuries before the gospel accounts would reveal salvation by grace through Christ alone, Enoch already believed. He believed in the existence of God, the real God, the one true living God that the Bible would testify to over the centuries. When virtually everyone around him was chasing after idols, dead gods who had no power to save or make promises, Enoch, by God's grace, walked with the Lord. He knew God well and he trusted God. He trusted in God to provide and to care for him. So Enoch was pleasing not only because he believed in the existence of the God that we know to be revealed in the Bible, but we're also told that God was pleased with him because he believed that God rewards those who seek him. Now this this rewarding underscores, I believe, the relational aspect of any saving faith. I know we shy away from it because the word of faith movement and other aspects of those who claim Christ have kind of ruined this perspective of our faith, but it ought not. When faith is exercised by God's grace, a transaction occurs between God and the individual who earnestly seeks Him. Now listen. A reward is given to all who ardently and passionately seek the real God who does exist. It is a defining characteristic of the Christian that you get what you seek most. Now, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That it is God, it is Christ, 
that the Christian desires most and seeks most and wants most. And God says, here's the great transaction. Here's the great reward for those who have put their faith in Christ. You get me. You get God. And that is the reward that is promised. That understanding that we get God now and we get God forever. Daily, hourly, minute by minute, seeking after God. That describes the life of faith, my beloved. Not just seeking God on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. Not just seeking God in your quiet time, in your prayer time, or your small group time. But a singular determination to devote oneself to knowing, loving, and serving God every moment of every day until He brings you home. Until you, like Enoch, get drawn up. You know, the History Channel has a series called Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's pretty interesting. The premise is is super simple. They take 10 individuals. They get to pick 10 survival things from a list, and then they drop them in these remote and very brutal locations. Uh, The goal is simple. Whoever lasts the longest, $500,000. $500,000 reward goes to those who can live amongst wild animals, harsh weather, starvation, if they make it, they win. Faith, we are told, is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. My beloved, I've watched some of these individuals stay so focused that they can make it 70, 80, 90 days in some of the harshest environments to win a reward of $500,000. The person of faith is one that we are not to lose focus on the end game. And the end game is not a half a million dollars for the Christian. The end game for you is the person of God. It is Christ himself. And I, I, would, I would argue that we could go through harsh weather, starvation, many struggles in our lives if we keep that end game in sight. So we've seen, number one, Abel's faithful offering. Number two, Enoch's faithful life. And last one, I want to look at Noah briefly before we close. Noah's faithful obedience. These are all characteristics that we want to see clearly, not simply to model, because that's, that's religion. That's not the gospel. The gospel transforms your heart in such a way, empowers you with the Spirit to see these models of faith and live in accordance with them because of the righteousness you currently have in Christ. So let's look at the last one, Noah's obedience. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Abel's faith was displayed through his offering, his worship. Enoch's through his living, through his life, walking with the Lord. And now Noah, we get an expression of faith through his obedience. Now God told Noah that he was going to flood the earth. Events unseen. That he was going to do something so catastrophic because of the sin of man. Something Noah had never seen before. We're told in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, continuously. 
Now remember our definition of faith from verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and what? The conviction of things not seen. So Noah, although he had never seen a flood, not like this, he had never seen waters that would surpass the highest mountains, something so extraordinary that the flesh would consider it preposterous or impossible. And yet when God told Noah he was going to do it, Noah believed without hesitation. There's no indication from the text that Noah said, wait a minute, i gotta, I got to stop and i got to think about this. He had no physical evidence for it, no scientific proof for it. But Noah simply trusted God with full conviction. How do we know that he trusted God? Look at what he did, the latter part of verse 7. In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his family. The specific plans for the building of the ark, the gathering of the animals two by two, the taking of his family, were told in Genesis 6.22. Listen, Noah did all this. He did all that God commanded him to do with a childlike faith. Noah listened to God and did what God said. So we know that Noah believed that the flood was coming to destroy the earth, and we also know that Noah believed that God would save him and his family. God had promised Noah in Genesis 6.18. God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You will be saved. You'll be saved. My beloved, it was Noah's full measure of faith unhindered, without hesitation, without doubt, without delay, without any physical sign or scientific evidence to support the claim, Noah, we're told, look at verse 7, in his actions he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that come by faith. So first we see that his saving faith actually had a condemning effect on those who refused to believe. As the world watched Noah build his ark, having no idea what he was doing, we do know that he was preaching during that period of time, depending upon how long you think the ark took to build, 60, 70 years. As the, as the world watched this silly ark being built, Noah became a man, a faithful man, as a witness to the world. He heard the word of God and he obeyed. Jesus gave a similar warning to the Jews who were looking for a sign. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 12? They wanted a sign. He said, you're only going to get the sign of Jonah. And then he said this. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba will rise at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. My beloved, when your friends want you to join them, young people, listen. When your friends want, them, want you to join them in their drunkenness and you by faith refuse, you condemn them. Your faith does. When the civil magistrates tell us that gathering, worship gatherings like this are not essential, we condemn them by gathering. 
Saints, when the world seems to be swallowed up by the fear of COVID-19, totalitarianistic governors, and race riots, we condemn them by remaining faithful and joyful in the Lord whom we know to be sovereign. Noah's faithfulness that condemned the world, we're also told, we are told, established him as an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Like Abel, like Enoch before him, Noah's obedience to building the ark by faith was such that God imputed righteousness to him. Not because Noah was sinless and not because he built the ark perfectly. The righteousness came from God to Noah because of Noah's faithfulness to God. And so we're told he becomes an heir of righteousness by faith. And in so doing, Noah becomes one that points all mankind in the same direction. Those who listen to the Word of God and obey in faith. Those who put their, sh- their trust in the Son of God, the Word of God, receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that only comes by faith to those who believe. The righteousness that has the power to save. Do you see what each of these three men had in common? Each was declared, listen, each was declared righteous by God. Remember the emphasis in Hebrews 10, the author is talking about the ability to draw near to God. Each here is declared righteous by God, enabling them to draw near to God, and the vehicle for that righteousness is their faith, their faithful obedience that God declares as righteous. And in the declaration of this righteousness, before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. And they were able to enjoy the sweet fellowship of being with God here and for eternity. Abel, Enoch, and Noah had put their faith in a Savior to come. We put our faith in a Savior who has come and will come again in glory. You see, Abel's offering was pleasing to God because it was offered up in faith. He trusted God implicitly to receive the act of worship. Jesus' offering on the cross was pleasing to God because it was offered up in faith. He allowed His body to be broken and His blood to be spilled on the cross for the sins of man because He believed, listen, He believed that His Father would take that blood and cleanse many redeeming many sons and daughters to glory. And he also believed in faith that God would not leave him to the grave. Acts chapter 2, verse 31, that Christ believed that God would not abandon him to the realm of the dead nor allow his body to see decay. Christ is a better Abel. Enoch, before he bodily was raised into heaven, lived a life of faith that we are told was pleasing to God. Jesus Christ, we know, before His death, resurrection, and bodily ascension into heaven, we know, the Bible says, lived a perfect life that was perfectly pleasing to God. In fact, in His high priestly prayer in John 17, He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Perfect obedience in perfect faith. And then he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Noah, by faith, built an ark and saved his family from a flood. Jesus Christ, by faith, ascended the cross, and as we know, he became the better ark, the better ship of salvation for all mankind, for anyone who repents and believes can find salvation, and not from an earthly flood, but from the great judgment to come. John chapter 12, verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Jesus is a better Abel, Jesus is a better Enoch, and Jesus is a better Noah. So that what Paul said in Romans 3.22 can be true. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ can be given freely to whom? To all who believe. To all who have faith. That includes you, my friends. That includes you. Do not say to yourself, I could never be like Abel. I could never worship like Abel. I could never walk with the Lord 67 years, let alone 365 like Enoch. I could never have the obedience of Noah being told to build an ark and a flood was coming that I had not yet seen. These men are not highlighted by the author to set up examples that you cannot attain to. They're not here to discourage you. Just the opposite. They're brought to us because these were men that were saved by grace through faith too. These were sinners who desperately needed God's grace to come through the faith in a Savior yet seen. They're brought to our attention so that we can see that faith and faith alone is what enables a person to be declared righteous by God. Faith and faith alone. Declared righteous by God, accepted by God, received by God, pleasing to God, approved by God, loved by God. Now, in Christ, and when He brings us home for all eternity, being loved by our Creator. My beloved, I believe that when you begin to grasp these truths, when you begin to see and stand in this very moment in your faith in Jesus that you have the perfect righteousness of the Savior imputed to you freely, when you have His perfect sinless standard in the eyes of God right now, when you begin to see clearly that the ultimate sacrifice made for you, Jesus' broken body and spilled blood, was to make you holy as He is holy and then give you the perfect faith that He exercised so that even when you're faithless, His faith remains. Oh my goodness, when we begin to see these, then we'll hear someone like Abel and we'll be able to say, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, I too can worship God like that. I can bring an offering. I can sacrifice. I can serve. I can gather on a Sunday morning and just like Abel, I can lift up worship and adoration to God and he will receive it. He'll be pleased with it because it's done in the faith of Christ. It means, my beloved, that you can, like Enoch, walk with the Lord now you can draw near to God now because you have the same faith of Christ given to you freely you can know as Enoch did that God exists and not just exists but you know who he is you can know like Enoch that God rewards those who seek him who pursue him 
He will not leave you hungry. He will not leave you outside. Pursue Christ with all your might. He says, I will reward you with my very presence. It means, my beloved, that when we understand what Christ has done to us and the righteousness we've received freely by grace through faith, and we walk in that faith, then we can, we can live like Noah. We can have God speak to us through his revealed word. And we can obey. He can speak, we will listen, and we will obey. And you will do what he has called you to do, even when it doesn't make any sense, even when it's really, really hard, and even when the world is telling you that you're a fool for trusting and obeying, you will trust and obey, because as we used to sing, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You'll do all this, my beloved, because you've received freely by grace through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. Because you have a guarantee of things hoped for. And you have certainty of things not seen. That is the type of faith that we want to define Cambrian Park Baptist Church. These are the types of people that we want to be by God's grace. Abel, Enoch, Noah, all pointed to Jesus Christ. Our righteousness comes through Him. Our faith comes from Him. I pray you find this passage and the next several as we look at very encouraging. That you can say, yes, in Christ, I can worship like that, I can live like that, and I can obey like that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take these great men here in Hebrews chapter 11 and that you would show us that they lived these lives because you were gracious to reveal yourself to them and call them in faith as you have us. Lord, we live in a time of great faithlessness, certainly in the culture and I would argue in the church. We want to be a people of faith. We want to receive these gifts freely that come from the broken body and spilled blood of Christ. We want to be a people that live in such a way that when the world sees us, when our family and friends, when they see us, they know there's something distinctly different. That it's not the flesh that guides us. It's not our own wisdom or the wisdom of this world. But it's the very fact that we have been declared righteous because of the work of Christ and now that alien righteousness that we possess is being worked out in a life of faith. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with Cambrian Park Baptist Church, all your true churches here in the South Bay, in this state, and throughout the world. Especially during this time when people are looking for answers in all the wrong places. That we would show them that the answer is Christ. That we would show them, Lord, what it truly means for a man or a woman, to be a man or woman of faith. That we would give them a new definition, not one by the DNC, but from your holy scriptures. We ask that you would do this, Lord, that you might bless us here in this community. You would bless the impact we have upon the lost. But we ask it most of all that you might be glorified in our lives, individually and as one body in Christ, that we as a faithful church would be pleasing to you. We ask it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.